0: Hello, my name is Logan Court, and I'm student project manager at the Clark Forum for Contemporary Issues at Dickinson College. I'm joined today by Vera Sung, who is a closing attorney and serves on the board of directors for Abacus Federal Savings Bank. So thank you for joining me. Vera, for those who have not heard of Abacus Federal Savings Bank or haven't seen the documentary film, Abacus, Small Enough to Jail, would you give a brief background on the story and the film?
1: Sure, Logan. First of all, thank you so much and the Clark Forum for um, having me here today. Um, It really means a lot to be able to share our experience and our story and hopefully impart um, some of the lessons that we've learned from this experience. So Abacus Small Enough to Jail basically documents uh, the intense and awful persecution that our family faced and the bank named Abacus Federal Savings Bank, a community bank that my father had founded back in 1984. He was an immigrant here, actually detained on Ellis Island, And as an immigrant here and being detained on the island, he wanted desperately to become an attorney to be able to help immigrants here um, have safe passage and become citizens here in the United States. So um, as an attorney, he went to Brooklyn Law School. um, In the evenings, he went to undergrad at University of Florida. And in the evenings at Brooklyn Law School, he made his way through Worked during the day and actually established a practice in Chinatown, an immigration practice, essentially. And with that, he helped a lot of the immigrants get their legal status here and also establish their jobs here and their businesses. So once they became citizens or had their legal status here, they wanted my father to help them establish their businesses. And many of these businesses were restaurants, small businesses restaurants laundromats etc typical community type of um, businesses and uh, neighborhood focused businesses and after that they also then wanted to buy their homes as well too which he helped them do that now my father also was interested in you know buying real estate as well and similarly to his clients he discovered that it was extremely difficult to be able to get a mortgage at a bank he and his and, our, his, and his clients, immigrants, would deposit their monies in the bank. And then when it came time to actually borrow money, the bank would say, oh, you have no dishonorable credit. And also, we don't understand your language. And my father thought that was extremely unfair and wrong. So with that, he decided to form Abacus. Abacus, that's a long, I'm sorry, but that's the that's long true. story about how my father actually started the bank. One thing he always said to us was that in your life, you know, whatever you wish to pursue, he always told us as his kids and his children, me and my sisters, that whatever you want to pursue in life, make sure that you want to do something for the community as well. That has to be a part of what you want to do. And when you give back, you will see things. You will you will get in return. That's his motto, and that's the basis for forming Abacus Federal Savings Bank. Now fast forward to the financial crisis. All along we've been giving loans out to our community, to the immigrant community, through a secondary market lender called Fannie Mae. And Fannie Mae worked with us to help provide low to moderate income, uh, low to moderate families, um, be able to get their first homes. That's essentially what we're doing. Lending to a community, our Chinese, essentially Chinese immigrant community, and help them buy their first homes. Once the financial crisis hit, as you know, and you wrote so eloquently in your brochure, and the cause of which is very multi- is many faceted. Um, a lot of the banks were extending of something called subprime mortgages, nothing of which we were doing, and basically that means extending extending loans to people who really weren't qualified. And high loans too, amounts of loans they would never really truly be able to pay back, and so a multitude of things. the 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 financial crisis occurred, and here's us who had no, who did not cause a financial crisis. As a matter of fact, we're doing exactly what banks should be doing, which are lending loans and safe loans. People were paying them back, which means that people were qualified. Suddenly we find ourselves a subject of a prosecution um, by the local district attorney. His name is Cyrus Vance. The, the the reason why this all came to attention upon us is because I was doing a closing at the bank. A closing is when you have the borrower and the purchaser, essentially, and the attorney who represents them, the seller, their attorney, the real estate broker is there, title company is there, that's how it is in York. And everyone sits at the table, and that's when a transaction occurs. When the money actually gets lent out to the borrower, and then they're able to buy their home. So at this closing, and it was in 2019, the borrower um, was Ariel Chi. It's 2009, because the financial crisis is 2008, Logan. So the borrower had actually asked the attorney at the table, and we were at the end of the closing, what's going on, what's happening with this loan because the actual loan officer, Ken Yu, which you saw in the movie, is asking for checks. And what are these checks are about? And that's what happened essentially because I thought that was very strange. My sister Jill, who is the CEO and president of the bank, I reported this to her. She thought it was extremely strange. Ken Yu said to me, oh, I had to do this in order for the borrower to get a employment verification letter, which is one of the components in getting a loan. That sounded like fraud to me, Logan. Mm-hmm. And it sounded like the borrower and the loan officer were in cahoots to get a mortgage, to fraudulently push through documentation to get a loan at the bank. And long story short, the borrower actually reported uh, to the police that Ken you had taken money from her she had actually called me beforehand saying, what do I do? I said, what do you mean, what do you do? Because this is nothing to do with us. You're basically, in my mind, you're basically trying to defraud the bank to get a loan. I actually had recommended to her to, call, to report this to the police. And actually, the report was filed against, Ken you? The police department then referred it to the DA's office. And then DA's office started this mm-hmm. um, this investigation we call it a persecution against us because here we are, we thought we were doing the right thing. We reported, and Jill reported it, my sister who's the CEO President, she reported it to Fannie Mae, she reported it to our regulator. We did everything that we were supposed to do. And self-investigated, hired, hired a, one of the top uh, investigators to actually see forensic, to see what was going on within The district attorney's office, we went through this long process of investigation which is not actually in the film, but the film documents our actual trial because what we decided to do was to actually go to trial. Not everybody has the chance to go to trial. We were fortunately in the position to be able to afford to go to trial. Most people once, and especially a bank, once a bank gets indicted, they do not make it. They fail. Actually, we were the only bank I think that I know that has ever survived. Who, if had they been indicted, actually survived an indictment. There was one other bank in York uh, city that the DA actually indicted, but they failed right afterwards. Now. When you think about that, it's a community bank that's been servicing the community, helping everybody get loans. Default rate was less than half a percent when the rest of the country was up to seven percent. Everybody's paying their loans. People are, are having homes. This is exactly what we intended to do. This was our purpose. And then the district attorney's office comes and and is literally trying to shut us down when they had no evidence or proof. Their investigation involved interviewing, um, we call it interrogation of our employees, of borrowers, intimidating them as well. And one of the most important things to realize is that English is not their first language, of our employees and our borrowers. And so I'm sure it had to be done through interpreters and there were different dialects as well. There's actually Mandarin, Cantonese, the Fujian, Fuzhou dialect. Wenzhou is another dialect, so many different dialects. You wonder how did they conduct all of this and whether their translations were actually accurate. But during the trial, we actually had translators. So you can imagine how crazy that was. And at one point, the judge even... Um, was so disgusted with one of the interpreters. He just knew the interpreter was not, you know, um, translating properly. He had to like switch and change a new one. But anyway, I divert. So, so the documentary basically covers from the beginning of the trial to the end mm-hmm. of the trial. Yeah. And that's another where we stand out, which is how many bangs have been indicted. Most of all of them fail. None of them actually go to trial. We went to trial and we actually won. Yeah. And that's also highly unusual, especially against the bullying behavior of the DA. Mm-hmm. They threw so many charges against us, hoping something would stick.
0: When you all decided to go to trial, what did you expect the trial to look like versus what did it actually turn into?
1: One of the things that the district attorney needs to do is turn over documentation to us, which right before our trial and give a list of the witnesses, which they did really at the last minute, you know, it's sort of to have the, the advantage. Mm-hmm. Um, we had read all the documentation. As we were going through the trial, one of the things that we didn't expect was how much more angry we were at the incompetence of the district attorney and realizing that, that since the expectation was that we would fail, we would never go to trial, and that now that we're at trial, their incompetence was, was fully being unveiled. In the, in the back of our heads, we were thinking, wow. You know, this is what happens when people can't afford to go to trial. Because in, in here, it's justice which is what you can afford, right? If you can't afford it, then the lack of evidence can never be brought forth for people to see. So that was astounding to us that they hadn't done their homework. They hadn't even researched or done background on their witnesses. We were able to do that and be able to discredit a lot of their the witnesses, which was painful, actually. Yeah. A lot of the witnesses were our own borrowers, who literally, after they took the stand and testified against us, one, as my sister Chanterelle had mentioned in the Q&A, had actually then later on showed up again to get another loan with us. Um, so I think that was one of the things. Then as the trial progressed and we saw how, you know, how lacking in evidence their case was. In fact, I remember um, the Ford person, after Fannie Mae had testified, had asked the court officer, so who's the victim here? So Fannie Mae supposed to be the victim. But after they testified, she said, I'm confused. Who's the victim here? Mm-hmm. Um, so, we we heard this through the court officer. Obviously, she, we never were allowed to speak to the jurors. Mm-hmm. Um, then I think the next thing that, as we're going through the trial, the next thing that was very worrisome and unexpected was how long the jury was taking to deliberate. Mm-hmm. On one hand, we thought the evidence was so clear, and then on the other hand, you know we were it, it, so you know, we were saying, oh, you know, what's the reason? Why is it taking that long? And the readbacks was was nerve-wracking for us. But then on the other hand, we knew, you know, how hard it is to win a trial as well, too. So all those things are going through. But I think in that when you're going through a trial, Logan, you just are thinking, you just have to focus about each day and focus on your outcome and try not to get distracted by anything else, mm-hmm. so.
0: <clears throat> you touched on a little bit last night in the Q&A. What was the community's reaction and your borrower's reaction when you started the investigation and B, when the film was released? How did those differ? Yes.
1: Uh, we knew that the community on one hand was very supportive because our borrowers are the community and they never ran on our bank. They didn't rush to pull out deposits, and we I would credit my father for this, because as I began telling you, he had strong ties with the community. They knew he was. He had actually done a lot of pro bono work for the community as well, and still does to this day. We still do. And he had built his reputation as such, and we had survived another crisis in the past, which was... There was an employee, the the movie had touched upon it, a former employee who had embezzled funds from the bank. And there was a run at that time. He had actually gone out to people online who were wanting to take out their deposits and telling them, I'm here. Everything is fine. Your money is safe. Mm -hmm. So we had survived that. Now you come to this. He had already forewarned the community through the press. It was all the Chinese press that the community reads, and said, this is what's going to happen. Um, The district attorney's office had given us literally like 24-hour notice about how we were going to be um, indicted, but he was able to come out ahead of time to tell them that this is wrong and we are going to fight it. So on one hand, we knew the community was supportive because our customers were sticking with us. Then on the other hand, there are different parts of the community where we really truly hoped would step in, community organizations and groups would try to step in to help us. Mm-hmm. That was not there. It was very disappointing, mm-hmm. and um, it's 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 I it's almost it's hurtful actually. Um, so there's this. Then we're going through the trial, and then you talk to people on the street and they're saying, oh, and you meet them, you know, on the street. Different people say it's so wrong what they've done. We're so glad you're fighting it. And then you have people like that one person who is our loyal friend and customer and member of our community who came every day to the trial. Um, and that also gives you this encouragement that, you, that you're fighting for um, really for the community you know it's not just abacus but you're fighting for this community and then you get to after the trial and you win and then everybody then comes out more people come out and say congratulations um, th- you know I'm thank you for winning so glad you stood up and then the documentary is and then you're thinking well where were you <laughs> during the investigation the indictment the trial but then you understand that everyone's scared and people are told to mind their own business and you know oh and the way the district attorney had portrayed this in the press it was like a press release oh you saw it in the film right it looked like we're so guilty right. you're 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 there's no such thing as innocent until proven guilty it's like you're guilty Um, by the very sheer announcement and his press release that we were the cause of the financial crisis. So you have all of that. Then, and you go through this understanding, and then the documentary comes out. And then you have even more people saying, you know, this was so wrong. Why did this happen? You know, um, I heard about it. We had actually when the chain gang had happened. Um, it was so hurtful to us We actually wanted to try to sue the district attorney's office in a civil case for selective prosecution um, and You know uh, for one reason or another that was not um, Pursued and it was just it's a difficult case to prove, but we really wanted to show that their um, That their rights, you know their rights had been violated essentially because again when you show chains on somebody, what do you think?
0: Immediately guilty. Yeah, you
1: think they're yeah. guilty. So um, we felt that was wrong to portray that. Oftentimes, I don't know if you notice, but they always cover the mm-hmm. hands of people so that you don't see that. Right. But chained together like this, these are basically women, immigrants, um, no mm-hmm. criminal background whatsoever, um, grandmother, actually, people who um, had their um, passports taken away, they weren't allowed to travel. Two of them, their parents died in Hong Kong and they weren't allowed to go to the funeral. It's just awful what they what they went through. But so we felt that their rights had been violated, um, but it was hard to prove that case. So that was let go. But then I mentioned selective prosecution, the bank. We also wanted to file basically saying that they had selectively prosecuted us and that they were biased in their prosecution of us. But our other attorneys said, no, your case is so strong. Why do you want to um, tink that? You know, and, right. and why do you want to pull a race card when your case is so strong? So we went to, to, to trial. But anyway, getting back to your question, so in the end, after the documentary comes out and the community you know, says yes, and this happens all the time, actually, to us, and it happens throughout history, And many different instances and cases now, till now, to present day. um, I always feel in the back of my mind, well, if you knew that that chain gang was so wrong and it felt felt so hurtful that this was happening, why weren't you there in the beginning to try to help and do something Mm -hmm. about this? So I always go back to that. Whenever, I think we all need to learn when we, different, I think different community groups and things and people rally um, together in different ways, but we have to really learn to do that when we see that amongst ourselves. When we see things happening to our fellow person, um, mankind, we have to step up and do something about it at that point in time and not be, I guess the word is a bystander.
0: I read that frontline follow-up piece Post fairly recently, and could you just talk a little bit about how the bank, as well as the um, Chinatown community that you guys are based in, has dealt with um, COVID and the racial discrimination <laughs> that's come with it?
1: Yeah, sure. One thing about this experience, it even puts a further responsibility on you to be active in trying to help out a problem. And COVID was, and has been, such a difficult time in a sense, and. And of course, it's a difficult time for everybody. But COVID impacted our community before the shutdown. This is an immigrant, Chinese immigrant community. People were not coming to the restaurants. People were afraid. Businesses were already slowly not being able to survive. Then on the other hand, fully they're fully aware. My employees, my staff were fully aware of the issues with COVID. So I had staff people coming to work already with their masks on before it was even mandated and all that. So on one hand, the safety protocols and the health mandates are very easy to um, enforce. It's almost self-enforced um, during COVID. But once the shutdown happened, our bank never closed its doors once. We were open all throughout. And we had customers and most of the customers are customers that were lining up to get in because we had to limit the amount of people coming in because of health reasons. They were all masked, loved, but they would be they are in the age of sixty and up, older elder because they don't go online, they don't know how to they don't do Venmo, they don't do all the so so you have and they want to pay their mortgage at, with the teller and person they want to have they have their passbook savings account Which I, I know you will not know what that is. It looks like <laughs> it Looks like a passport literally and it shows the money in the money that gets deposited literally, They carry it around with huh. them. There are people who want to transact. They still use cash I understand that probably um your generation does not use cash (laughs) very much so um they're coming to the bank and they're transacting and this is this we kept open you know all throughout COVID. and and the concerns was for our staff and also their health too it was a really really tough time but through the covid um we we're actually still lending. we had to do closings. The closings were difficult. You mm-hmm. can all sit in a room to do all a right. closing, right? right so um we would do these drive by drop off you know a combination of email documents and and all that um, type of closings. Yes, people were buying homes. people were refinancing because interest rates were it are and are still at an all time low, right. so people were. Refinancing. Um, we were busy with that, um, and then we also extended something called um, the PPP loan, a paycheck yeah. protection um, program plan and pro- program. And the the um, in our at that time and when the SBA, the Small Business Administration, was extending that out, um, and throughout COVID, one thing that comes. Fourth was the true necessity for a community bank, a savings bank, which really services the community. I, we had so many people come to us saying that their traditional bank, which is a big bank, was not giving them the PPP. And we could only think, well, because perhaps the amount was too low, they did not want to spend the time to process those, because in order to process The low PPP loans, the amount, is the same amount of time as to process a really Mm -hmm. large one. And your fee that the bank gets is based upon the loan amount. But we were extending out these PPP loans. Um, We did about, I think, 200 or so. And our customers were um, nail salons, restaurants, dentists. Eyeglass store, grocery stores all community you know businesses right. even uber driver um, real estate broker uh, architect mm-hmm. all small businesses and the range was from like 2100 and up to effort in the hundreds of thousands but most of them were within this 10,000 to 20 10,000 and less mm-hmm. amount so can you imagine? there other words, the lowest one twenty one hundred 2100 or 2500 The fee on that has been $125. Right. But you want to do this as uh-huh. a bank. We wanted to do this. And this amount of money people were so grateful for. That helped them, you know, helped them throughout this right. uh, crisis. So COVID, yes, difficult time in that sense. But then our true purpose is there and we're thankfully able to help out our community um doing the things that we normally do um and even helping out more so with the PPP loans and then then there's also the um the racism involved which is has been very difficult um my sisters and I have been trying to work on in which now a lot of people have been working on trying to First, get people to recognize that there's something called hate crimes Uh and hate crimes against Asian Americans because at first it was hard for people to even acknowledge that and count that. We had a case where there was a grandmother, a 90-year-old grandmother in Brooklyn who was torched in the back by two kids and in front of her door, right, but how could you prove it was a hate crime? That's what law enforcement was saying. No words were said, but you and I both know you don't need words to prove a hate crime, actually. So it's been an uphill struggle, but I think there's recognition, more and more recognition now. And when you count it, there's, there's a crazy number of 833% was the increase in the number of hate crimes against Asian Americans. And I was checking the stats. There's, um, I think it's 7% of the population in the United States is Asian. Mm. And in New York City, about 14% is Asian. These are high numbers. But another thing, we have to speak up, and we have to say something. You saw and then use all the horrific crimes that have been going on and occurring. Um, but a lot of them are not talked about, like the woman in our community who I know who got punched in the face by someone as she's just walking down the street, mm. someone like that. Um, people who are getting slurs you know, anti radiation slurs being made when they walk down the street. These are all mm. things that that happen. It happened to me when I was going to the elementary school in Connecticut when we moved to Connecticut. So I know what that's about. I know mm. how that feels actually. Um I got punched, I got assaulted, all these things. But and it's crazy that it's has nothing has changed and it's even worse right now so but we have to be so careful because hate breeds hate and right. we have to be careful i i don't ever want to be hateful I, i'd rather treat educate people mm-hmm. um and hopefully you know educate about each other uh, hopefully and respect each other's cultures and yeah. and have recognition or awareness i think that's important yeah. as well too but crazy that i uh, my sister was laughing at me i um I carry around a taser. (laughs) I have mine on right now. I carry around a taser. I mean, that's just a matter of life. And when I'm going on a subway, if I see something just, you know, concerning, Mm -hmm. I do. Um, And uh, so COVID, so not only are there the physical health issues, the perception issues are around that too, and also the management issues that come with COVID, Mm -hmm. it's all there and it feels constant. So... But um, I try to remain very positive, our whole family does, and remain hopeful right. um, that things will continue to improve. Right.
0: Well, I think one of the things that I noticed from watching the film, I guess three times now, and as well as meeting your family and all these things, it's very clear that you guys do a lot more than banking, start, <laughs> starting with your father and also the things you and your sisters do for your community. So I want to thank you for that, but also on behalf of myself and the Clark Farm, thank you for sitting and having this conversation with me.
1: Thank you so much, Logan, and the Clark Forum for your time. We really um, appreciate that.